cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, we have an additional extra special podcast live from Future Proof. I sit down with AQR's Cliff Asnes. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer at AQR, a $100 billion plus uh, hedge fund that specializes in a run of strategies ranging from quantitative analytics to value investing and a whole run of different things in between. Uh, I found this short discussion to be really quite intriguing. Cliff talks about uh, all the things he got wrong, which, to be fair to him, is much less than all the things he got right. AQR is in the middle of an incredible performance run, having been positioned correctly uh, for a variety of things that took place, not just equities coming out of the pandemic, but really approaching the rise in interest rates and the increase in inflation in just a way that took full advantage of it. He is always one of my favorite people to talk to, not just because he's so mathy and brilliant on that side, but he's one of the few quants that is so articulate and funny uh, on the English side. And so you get the best of both words with Cliff. With no further ado, my future-proof Masters in Business live discussion with Cliff Asnes. You threw away a promising career in academia to go into finance. Te- tell us a little bit about what led to AQR and why you thought, hey, I, I-, I think I can do this better than everybody else. Well, I never had... Maybe that feeling was implied, but I wouldn't say that. I, even I know not to say that out loud. Right. Um, it's funny sitting here in, in Newport Beach. We're in Newport Beach, right? Uh, Huntington Beach, Close? Newport Beach. Yeah, it's right up the road. All right. My hotel, I think, was in Newport Beach. Can I say Newport Beach? You can. All right. Because Newport Beach and uh, PIMCO actually features in my personal story. I, I was at the University of Chicago studying for a PhD in, in finance. I first went to Goldman Sachs for a summer 
I had a professor from undergrad who worked there, one of my best friends worked there. Like you, you can name drop, feel free to uh, oh, um, give a uh, shout John out. John Biner, he was CEO of, uh, CIO of fixed income for about 20 years at, at GSAM. Um, then I went for a year. I was still writing my dissertation. I was writing my dissertation at night on value and momentum to choose individual stocks right. while working at Goldman during the day. It was, it, it was the, probably the second hardest time in my life. The hardest was when my wife and I, mainly her, but my wife and I had two sets of twins 18 months apart. Um, four, four kids in 18 months. Is, she gets mad at me when I refer to our family planning as a gross failure of risk control. Um, but it was true. So I was there about a year and I was actually just trying to decide, do I want to stay at Goldman? I was having a, a good, I was enjoying it. Didn't feel like what I was supposed to do. I was, being, I was a portfolio manager, I was trading, it was fun, but you know, I was studying uh, academic finance. Dumb luck, I had written one paper in the Journal of Portfolio Management. Uh, it was called Option Adjusted Spreads and a Steep Yield Curve. You've seen the movie, Charlize Theron is in it, it's, it's really, it's very good. Um, they read it, and being fellow geeks, they, they liked it, asked to talk to me, ended up, uh, fly me out, I met with, with, with them. Um, I remember one thing, I'm telling you too many stories. This was the first time I ever ate sushi. Uh -huh. The guy from uh, PIMCO, I didn't eat fish at that point, I like fish now. Uh, but the guy uh, from PIMCO, a guy named, uh, he's passed away now, but a guy named Frank Rabinovich, was a great guy, said to me, hey, is sushi okay for lunch? And this is something, if there are any 20-somethings in the audience, you think you're, you gotta say fine to that. You don't realize the person asking you will be totally okay with you going, actually, I don't love sushi. You feel like you're gonna blow the whole thing. So I'm like, yeah, no, sushi's wonderful. So on this interview, I chewed one piece of sushi for about 15 minutes and I did spit it into a napkin when he wasn't looking. And they still offered me a job to go out there and start a research group. It kind of light bulb went off. I'm like, wait, doing academic research but an applied way um, I get to study the same things, I get to see if they work for real, and I think PIMCO pays better than academia, so good idea. So I told Goldman, I think I'm doing this. And Goldman said, you know, we're thinking of doing that. To this day, I don't know if that's true, uh, but I decided Manhattan is much more attractive than Newport Beach. Right. Who, who and needs I this weather, right? Goldman. Look, but cloudy, overcast, who wants yeah. to be in California? Anyone who's happy where they ended up, who doesn't admit that there was a fair amount of luck now you can make your own luck, and effort counts, ability counts, but luck, luck counts too. I got lucky at various stages in this. I hear that on a regular basis from, from guests on Masters in Business. Um, it's terrible advice to give, by the way. What? First, get lucky. Well, Not useful. Well, the, the table, there are lots of people who are very smart and very hardworking who don't achieve outstanding, amazing success, a top 0.1% success. What separates some of them? You've mentioned Fair this repeatedly. There's a little serendipity in, in everything. So speaking of serendipity, you're at Goldman. Yeah. You meet some folks. Tell us how AQR came about. Um, so I started this group. This was 1994. Uh, I know I look around. I look for the people who were born in 19, before 1994, and I want to say hi, shout out to them. Um, so we started this group. It was initially four people with a very general, scary general mandate. 
They had no idea why they wanted this group. They just knew other people were starting quant groups on Wall Street. Ironically, the then success of long-term capital management right. um, made, Get us some of that. made a lot of the firms think we need applied academics here. I don't think we've ever done anything particularly similar to long-term capital management, but they actually helped me out too. So we started this group with no mandate, just see if you can help. We kind of went around like door-to-door -door quants around GSAM saying, does any, anyone need anything quantitative? Um, and the first job they asked us to do was to help. They had a, 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 an active global equity product, you know, concentrated stock picking, that had kind of a so-so record. And if you analyze their record, it was really strong within each country, and, but they were always in the wrong countries. So they'd have client meetings that would be, well, the good news is our Norwegian stocks crushed the Norwegian index. The bad news is there was a coup in Norway. Um, there hasn't been a coup in Norway since 1940, uh, but they, they approximated it. So they turned to us and they said, can you guys help pick countries? And here's where, you know, luck meets chutzpah. You, at this point, you don't go, well, I don't know. I've never really tested picking countries. You go, Hell yes, we can help pick countries. We went into a very tiny room, four of us, and kind of it's embarrassing how simple it was. We spent about three days before we hit on the obvious solution, which was to pretend countries were individual stocks and treat them like what we had studied in academia, the early work on value, momentum, even size for predicting individual stocks. We ended up writing a paper on it. It held up for countries, and we just kept growing it. Individual stocks, bonds, currencies, applying the same philosophy over and over again. And then after about four or five years of that, we had one of my co-founders, David Kabiller, started a full year of working on me, saying, you know, you could do this on your own. Right. And he was a little bit of the Mephistopheles. Uh, so it, 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 I was very scared of doing that. It's scary to leave Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is really good at terrifying you too, by the way. When you, when you Say you're thinking about leaving, if you're honest, if you don't just give them a fait accompli and say, I'm considering this, which I did. You sit down with very senior people, and they kind of say, you know, you only get to leave Goldman Sachs once, young man. And then you shrivel and you go, I'll stay. Um, so I did that a, a couple rounds till finally, uh, end of 97, early 98, took the plunge. And, and to Goldman's credit, they're very good at keeping hooks in people. They become your prime broker. They're yeah. selling you transactions, trades. When you, this is, this is getting really into some nitty gritty details. But when you leave Goldman, the part you left is quite mad at you. The rest of Goldman is quite excited. Because the money we were managing at Goldman, I did not expect to get into this kind of stuff. But the money we were managing at Goldman, we could not trade with Goldman for rather obvious mm -hmm. reasons. Um, once we leave, suddenly we're a potential, and, and that did help smooth the relationship over. And Goldman is still, I, I, certainly one of the, it alternates, it bounces around a bit, but one of the top two or three people we trade with these days. So, so you leave Goldman, you set up your own, own shop. At, at what point do you get a sense, hey, this can work. We're, we're having clients come in, the numbers look pretty good, our performance doesn't stink. When, when does it dawn on you, this was a good decision to hang our own shin. I don't know, I'm hoping it kicks in soon. <laughs> One of these days, soon. Um, we had a very strong start prior to trading. 
We left, it took us about nine months to, we didn't take a thing out of Goldman, we were building and rebuilding, we had a road show. Um, we made it, what I think is, uh, I've been saying for years, was an era, and it was an era. When we were at Goldman, we ran all kinds of different mandates. We saw quantitative tools as a very general thing, and you could run an aggressive hedge fund style, long and short, market neutral, uh, levered to be, to, to, to try to make a lot of money, or you could be long only and try to beat a benchmark by one and a half percent a year. You could use the tools either way. When we launched our own firm, we said we're only gonna start, we intend to do it all eventually, but we're gonna start with the very aggressive version of our hedge fund product. Partly I think it was an error, partly I think we didn't have a tremendous amount of choice. When you're 30 and starting your own firm and you say you wanna run traditional long only assets, people, uh, your potential clients kind of look and go, come back when you've been doing it for five years and you look more like I look now than I looked then. When you say, we're launching an aggressive hedge fund and we're closing, they go, oh cool, we're in. Um, so apparently if you charge two and 20, it's a lot easier to get new clients at that point in your career than if you try, and we don't charge two and 20 anymore, but that's, that's the old days. So we launched a very aggressive version we took, for the fellow geeks in the audience, I assume there are a couple, in the low to mid-20s in terms of targeted volatility. That's north of a naked equity market exposure. We raised a billion dollars, which I do believe was the largest standing start hedge fund launch uh, to that point. So in that sense, we were successful immediately. It is not, there's been way bigger ones since then. We've been eclipsed by that. The next, 18 months of actually running money were very, very bad. Mm -hmm. um, we started running money in August of 98. I'm gonna mention them again. I, again, I didn't mean to mention them once, let alone twice, but August of 98 is when um, uh, the LTCM kind of death spiral began. Uh, Russia defaulted, and it's always Russia. Uh, in, in, uh, and LTCM began a few months, our initial you know, uh, the stock market was down about 20% in August of 98. I always think of this as like the crash nobody remembers. And I think no one remembers it for two reasons. It wasn't one day, it was kind of fairly steady all month and it came back pretty quickly after it. So there's no scarring moment and there was no, there was no accompanying pandemic. Um, we did well during that crash. Then something called the dot-com bubble took off. And I, I have written a lot about this. Uh, I, I think in the last five years, people think of us maybe too much as value investors. It's a big part of what we do, but it's far from all. We go through decade-long periods where we hardly talk about it because many of the other things are dominating. In giant bubbles, the value portion of what we were doing suffers. And that happened in, 90, in, in 99, 2000, and it happened in 19 and, and 20. Um, so we were down in this account about 35%. Sole product, you run one product, in your first 18 months, you're down 35%. Now, if the fellow quants in the, in the room are saying, well, you were taking 23% volatility, that's barely maybe two standard deviations. Whoever's thinking that is a moron. <laughs> I was thinking it at the time. Because I'm thinking the world thinks about risk-adjusted returns, right? We, were, we had a up three triple-digit years in this kind of account at Goldman. Not a good way to start a business. No. Um. 
When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk about, you mentioned, uh, you started with the long short, you, you've become known as value guys, but really you run a variety of different strategies and different, different uh, silos. Let's talk a little bit about how that developed. How did you go from, hey, we're gonna run and gun a long short and, and take an occasional 30% hit to adding diversified approaches to not just risk management, but where you're gonna generate your alpha from? Um, partly that's just been always what we've been done. Even in our time at Goldman Sachs, uh, as I just told you guys, we started out, first models we built were about what equity countries looked more attractive. We quickly ported those to bond markets. Um, we, at that time, the world has gotten deeper. Uh, the factor world has gotten deeper. But value and momentum were the two main factors. Uh, when you go to a bond market, you go, what's value? Uh, everybody who does this will claim, and I will too, that their models are much better and more subtle than this. But if you just looked at prospective real bond yield across 20 countries, the ones with higher yields tend to be scarier, like value things often are, and tend to on average do better. Momentum is ridiculously easy. Everywhere you go, things tend to keep trending in the same direction. So by the time we left Goldman, we already traded countries, uh, stock markets, bond markets, currencies, um, and individual stocks, which is really what a few of us had written our dissertations on globally. At AQR, we've expanded that, again, this is 25 years, so it's not like we just walked in and, and did this, um, into many different factors, not hundreds. Sometimes people, people refer to the factor zoo, I get annoyed. There are about five to 10 major things that most, I, and I'm speaking in general, there'll be exceptions, that most quants probably believe in. 
Uh, cheap tends to be expensive. Uh, good momentum, both price and then later on, importantly, fundamentals. Things getting better tend to keep getting better. Lower risk things, measured both fundamentally and in terms of the quant measures, beta, volatility, tend to do better than you would think. Higher quality assets, more profitable, higher return on whatever you'd like to, to measure it on. Expanding the set of things beyond value and momentum, and then expanding the places we do it. We didn't do emerging markets at, at, at Goldman. When you add that, you get, you get two wonderful things at once. Actually, you could fail utterly. If it works, you get two wonderful things at once. You get another strategy to add, which is correlated. You shouldn't pretend it's not, but it's not perfectly correlated, so it's somewhat diversifying. And you get another little out-of-sample test. Statisticians, quants, we have very strange dreams. We don't dream about cars and houses and significant others. We dream about out-of-sample tests. It's, it's kind of the gold standard. You, you often don't have enough. Sometimes you got to wait 30 years to get a good out-of-sample test of something. But when you go to a new market you haven't looked at yet, and it holds up, you go, ooh, maybe, maybe we're actually onto something here. By the way, we think if we have good out-of-sample tests, we will get nice cars and houses and significant others. We're not indifferent to that. We just take a different path. So we've been expanding both how we measure things and where we do it. I'm glad you, you referenced that, not geographically, but let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the issues that seems to really have come into its own over the past decade, which is tax-aware investing. It, it's People talk about asset location and, hey, I'm going to put my highest turnover, most active account into my tax-deferred portfolio, and the long-term boring index stuff I'll keep in my... Um, taxable account, that seems to be the conventional wisdom. You seem to, uh, to have moved in a, a direction opposite that. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, first, the conventional wisdom isn't wrong if you're owning a traditional, say, actively managed long-only stock portfolio with some decent turnover. That doesn't have very attractive tax properties. Um, where we got into this, uh, starting the research about 10 years ago, uh, writing our first paper. We've been fairly public about this stuff. Um, first paper, I think, on this was in 2015. Uh, were a few different sets. And here again, we got lucky. We got lucky in that we already were in both the traditional long-only world and the long-short world. And it turns out that first, the very act, ima imagine you have an active, beat the benchmark, traditional stock portfolio. Now imagine you separate that into an index fund and a long-short portfolio. And just for the sake of this argument, imagine if you add those two together, you get back to the original. The long-short is the over and the underweights that you had before. Just that act of separation makes something far more tax efficient. The index fund accrues, like all index funds are fairly tax efficient. And the active part, you only pay tax if you make money. If you have a bad year, you, you don't pay uh, tax on it. Um, in a traditional long-only portfolio, imagine markets, they do go up on average over time, and you want to sell something that you actually haven't produced alpha in, you just don't like the stock anymore. You get a tax hit from that. So simply the separation gets far more efficient. Then you say, well, can I do any better about this? And here, this is the last time, I'll try to mention luck, not again. This will be the last time I'll mention luck. 
but the average turnover of our stock selection models, and this was not by design, this is why it's luck, it's about a year. You know, Nate, you know what averages mean? Some things are fairly quick, some things we hold for five years, but average is about a year. A year is a magic number a in a stock, day. a year and a day, right? Uh, you know, you have a big winner um, at 11 and a half months. You're kind of an idiot if you sell it, right? Unless, unless you have illegal inside information, wait two weeks in a day. It turns out that in a long short portfolio with, uh, with not tremendous turnover, but decent turnover in an average kind of one year holding period, there's a tremendous amount of optimization around that you can do. So, so the optimization on holding something beyond the, to get to the lower long term capital gains tax is pretty obvious. What about the, the flip side of that? What about tax loss harvesting to offset those, some of those gains? We're big fans of that. How do you approach this? Yeah. It, essentially, what we do, you can think of as, as, uh, as a, a, I hope this sounds arrogant, a more advanced form of tax loss harvesting. We are certainly waiting to sell the winners. By the way, if something's a winner in three months and we think the price has just gotten stupid, the alpha models will dominate the tax models. It's not a pure tax product. This is a decision when it's at the margin. But we also will rather savagely say, uh, this thing's on the edge of where we want to sell it, uh, and it's 11 and a half months. So let's, let's take the short-term loss uh, on that. So I think of it as just, just a more uh, a entirely simple. I mean, uh, uh, tax strategies that are based only on tax are very dodgy. Um, our friends at the Eternal Revenue Service don't particularly like tax strategies that, that are being done for pure tax purposes. But I, I hope we never live in a world where someone can go, you probably want to sell that, but you have to wait two and a half weeks. Uh, so we're fairly savage in those portfolios about, about bolt minimizing the, the, the taxable gains and taking losses when we can. And your original question of why you wouldn't hold this in a in a tax-free account? Well, the simple answer is if, if you do this, and again, it's not, this is not really magic. This is not some esoteric, um, these are not my friends in private equity with their carried interests, whatever. This is the 12-month the thing. If you do that systematically, not even over-aggressively, you generate more tax benefit than you can use in the standalone portfolio. The standalone portfolio is already turned into a long-term gain. And you can use those extra losses elsewhere. And if you put that into a taxable account, you can't take those losses out of a taxable account and use them elsewhere. So I do think the conventional wisdom, I, I, won't, I won't be mean about it. It is, for most conventional portfolios, I think it, it is the right wisdom. But I think you can do better. So let's, let's pivot a little bit and talk about value, which you tend- No one from the IRS is here, are they? We're but they, I'm very comfortable with what we're doing, but I don't, I don't want to push it. They do a nice job with guns. They let you know what you can and can't get away. It, just, just follow the rules. It's easy. Yes. Not that, that, not that difficult. You, you, got, you have an accountant, right? No, I do it all myself. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Um, return like this. Right. Manual. You're filling out with a pencil. Of, yeah. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about value, which is how a lot of people traditionally think about you. Uh, value had a horrific decade in the 2010s. And anybody who was paying attention to mean reversion was waiting for it to come, waiting for it to come. What made the 2010s such an unusual period 
for value and how long can the current run of, of value playing catch up last for? All right. Barry just asked me a 27 minute answer question. So I'll, I'll, I'll try not to, I'll try yeah. not to abuse it. You got 11, I know, 29. I know, I know. So. Um, first, you are right. I think we have been known, me in particular, for value only because I've been screaming about it since about 2019. I also occasionally write things pointing out that I go through decades where I never mention value. Um, from about post-GFC, you said 2010, I think that's about right, through 2000, maybe 18, most traditional forms of value had a pretty bad run. You can always find somebody with their own indicator that they won't tell you what it is and it's proprietary and it would have worked like a charm. Uh, but almost ubiquitously, value strategies did poorly. We actually, I'm, about, I'm not gonna hide from a very bad period for us, I'm about to get to it, but we actually had a really good run from 2010 through 2017 while value was suffering because it's not all we do, it's not more than half of what we do. And pretty much everything else we do worked. Momentum worked, fundamental momentum worked, quality investing worked, low risk investing worked. I think a lot of the reason for this is value's loss over that period was because, and I, I don't mean, I, I hope I don't mean this in a deep moral sense, but it deserved to lose. The companies underperformed, they under-executed. The fundamentals were not good. And it turns out that if one runs a pure quantitative, you know, the Graham and Dodd people think of value very differently, more holistically. But in the quant world, value is generally price compared to fundamentals. It's a pure bargain searching. I, I hear you use the phrase cheap for a reason. Cheap, cheap for a reason is, is what the Graham and Dodd people might say, and it's what our model as a whole would say. I'm gonna segue for a second. I think the quants and academics messed up this conversation 25 years ago by calling the, the famous Fahman French, Fahman French are my dissertation advisors, I love them. I don't even think they called it value early on, but that became called the value factor, price to a fundamental. Nobody just really disagrees with the Graham and Dodd world that that's not value. Value is, is what you're paying compared to fundamentals in context of is it a good company, is it executing well, what are its growth, how risky is it? In the quantitative academic world, you get there by this thing they call the value factor, which I think really should be called the low price, or if you want to be more long-winded, the low price to fundamental factor. I like that factor. On average, it wins. It doesn't win nearly as much as if you combine it with some measures of is it, does it deserve to be cheap? One simple way to think of 2010 through, through about 18 is the does it deserve to cheap, which is more, be cheap, which is more than half of what we do, work like a charm. So value can lose, and somebody who has that as part of their process but doesn't dominate their process can do fine. Now, what, and as late as late 2017, I was actually taking the opposite side of some famous, a handful, not just one, of famous value managers who were saying, we've had eight terrible years, that's never happened before, it has to reverse. And we measure this thing called the value spread. How cheap does value look if you do the Fama French type world? And by the way, we do a, a, a lot more complex things in price to book, I'm using shorthand. But if you look at cheap versus expensive, a, a blaring question is always how cheap and how expensive. If they're a smidgen difference, it's maybe not as interesting as if they're a big difference. As late as 2017, even a pure 
academic-style value strategy, which had a terrible eight-year run, didn't look cheap because the fundamentals had driven its loss. When you lose because your E goes down by half, if your P goes down by half too, you didn't get any cheaper. You stayed the same. And it turns out that's actually a pretty good environment for people like us. What happened 19 and 20, 18 to some extent, but largely 19 and 20, is that I, I, I don't like to use the word bubble a lot. I'm still scared of Gene Fama enough that, he was, uh, that saying the word bubble, I feel like you know, something's going to come down from the rafters. Um, but I do think 19 and 20, uh, much like uh, 99 and 2000, was a kind of crazy bubble. And in that world, and I'm going to self-servingly describe us as a rational strategy, not good to be a rational strategy. Value lost there because of a mania, not because the companies were losing on the fundamentals. And I'll be brutally honest, we don't have a lot to protect us from that kind of environment. To, to win in that environment, you need to find a systematic long-term factor that makes money on average, that does really well in a crazy bubble. Sounds like momentum. Momentum is one of the few you have hopes on. Um, momentum is a flighty thing to put all your eggs on. For one thing, a momentum standalone has a horrific left tail. When momentum reverses, if you get it wrong, um, also, momentum, you can think you have a good environment. On average, it works in a bubble. It did add value in this bubble. But if you get a few wiggles that are crazy, momentum is more sensitive. So momentum is one of the few you have hopes on. Um, and it's interesting you raise it, because to find one that will help, it has to be something that works in a bubble, but works on average over the long term. I'm, I'm excluding massively perfect timing. I'm not, obviously, if you can say, do value all the time except 19 and 20. That's great. So, so is it a coincidence that your dissertation was value and momentum together? And is that useful? If it is, it was a happy coincidence. Right. So um, how useful was that? Um, it was certainly useful, uh, though, if I can admit to this crowd, I think I should have listened to it a little more. In, in late 2019, we've always described trying to time factors and the market as an investing sin. And we have always said, with a little bit of a smile on our face, and we recommend you sin a little. Just a little. Meaning when you see things that you, that you are fairly convinced and you've put the work in, cannot hold long term, that are just at epic levels. And by late 2019, the spread between cheap and expensive was approaching the dot-com bubble wide. We think you could do a little more of it. And I wrote, and I was very honest about this, I said I'm not listening to the momentum trend part of this because I don't know it could this time it momentum is flighty like I said it works on average not always it could come back in the next three days in which case momentum is going to have kept you from the opportunity if I can go back in time it still has worked out for us and I'm happy but if I can go back in time and 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 say Cliff why don't you why don't you listen to yourself and wait till it starts to work would have been even better when cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. 
By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk a little bit about this decade and last decade. Uh, value didn't do well when capital was cheap, rates were low, inflation was practically non-existent, growth really dominated. Now it's a, a new regime. The 10-year is, is four and change. The Fed funds rate is five and change. Even though inflation is, has rolled over, everything is still elevated in price. What does that mean looking at forward versus what we just came out of. Is this possibly an environment where that spread is going to narrow or reverse? Or how do you look at this regime change? I, um, I think the macro world influences this, but maybe a little less than other people think. The spread between cheap and expensive historically is only mildly related to interest rates, real or nominal. The story is good. When interest rates are really high, people prefer value because the cash flows are short-term. And when they're really low, you prefer growth because cash flows are very long-term. One of the problems is when you actually look at expensive versus cheap companies, the realized growth differentials of broad, diversified portfolios, I'm not talking about picking NVIDIA or something, are very small. So there really is not a very strong theoretical reason. Um, I, I think occasionally you hit manias, and manias are very, very hard to model. I, I don't trust anyone to say what. We know a bunch of the conditions for a mania, technological innovation and cheap money are probably part of it. Um, technological innovation will certainly continue, but as I love to point out, people who think value can't do well in technological innovation are ignoring the fact that it did well in the last 150 years. You know, we started out with steamships. Um, the strategy can survive that. Um, I do think uh, a extremely cheap money is probably in a, even if I can tell you it should not be theoretically linked as much as it is, is probably in a looser, harder to prove way correlated to people going nuts. Write that down. This is very quantitative, academic, people going nuts. Um, and I do think it, that it, era, I, it, we, you know us, we don't try to make massive macroeconomic forecasts. But I, I think for 10 years, we lived in a world where maybe the most significant macroeconomic thing to me is the, the central banks around the world, and the Fed in particular, did not face trade-offs. Inflation 
was non-existent, and they could cut rates when they wanted to stimulate growth. They could raise rates if they felt like uh, if they felt like it. I have no other better reason for that. Um, they clearly, even with inflation abating, I, I think it's going to be a long time till, till the central banks in the world face a world with no trade-offs. Um, and the spread between cheap and expensive, kind of my north star. It's, it's, I'm sad to tell people it is no longer wider than the dot-com bubble. So, it's so, about 85% of it, though. So we've had a massive comeback, but this is the salesiest thing I will tell this audience. Uh, I, I have laughed at people on Wall Street since I was 26 for the following phrase, but I think we're in the third inning of this thing. <laughs> so, so in the last minute we have, uh, where do you see people currently? I'm asking you this as a quant, not, not a psychologist. Quantitatively, where are you looking out at the world and seeing people still going crazy? Is it, is it AI? Is it, t tell us what, what the next bubble I, to avoid is. I have been, I'm a little, if something bad happens to me and it's fishy, I think it's gonna be the private equity industry that gets me. Um, I've written a lot, uh, and I've talked about this for years. This is a 28-year-old argument I've been having. Nothing wrong with private investing at all. Uh, but I think more and more people do it today because they don't have to show volatility, not for the opportunity. When David Swenson was doing it in the 80s, it was about the money-making opportunity. It wasn't about the fact that he didn't have to report ups and downs. And I think it's become more like that. And I think long-only markets are, are, have kind of whistled past a bit of a graveyard. Real, real interest rates have gone up 200 basis points on the 30-year, and stock markets have shrugged it off, and typically those have moved together. But the private world is even more extreme, where uh, the, I'm not sure if they tried to sell it what they would get, but they're still marked pretty, pretty crazy. So I've been picking on them for a while, and with zero time to go, I see no reason to pick a new Victim, I love private investing. I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and my kids don't get picked for sports teams because I make fun of private investing. Um, but I do think uh, that world is dominated investing for a while, partly for good reasons, because there are some opportunities and great investors, but partly for some terrible reasons, because they take volatility and they just cover it up. And I think that uh, those chickens may come home to roost at some point. Cliff, I could talk to you for hours, but the clock says zero, so we have to wrap it up. Let's hear it for Cliff Asnes of AQR. Thank you so much. We have been speaking with Cliff Asnes. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer of AQR, a $100 billion hedge fund specializing in quantitative analytics, uh, statistical arbitrage, value investing, etc. If you enjoy this conversation, hey, be sure and check out any of our previous 500 discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. I want to thank the team at Advisor Circle for making the audio available from this extra special live event. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business Special Live Edition on Bloomberg Radio.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.